Both God's justice and the timing of his justice are perfect. Whatever he has promised will come to pass precisely on his schedule. It's not enough to eliminate evil. You must also be careful to obey God completely. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Marty Buck, fellow students, if you would turn to 2 Kings 9, 2 Kings 9. We're in a study, as you know, on 1 and 2 Kings, which really records the history of the monarchy in both Israel and Judah. This lasts for a couple of centuries. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the mercy of God towards both the Israelites and the Arameans. God used a single prophet, Elisha, to stop a bloody set of incursions or raids into Israel from the Arameans, and God did it with no loss of life, which is interesting. This week, we want to look at something that's extremely timely with relationship to our church, which is a leadership transition. This is a leadership transition in Israel. For those of you that know anything about history, you know that leadership transitions are often uh, difficult, and when you come to political leadership transitions, they're often bloody and violent. So today we're going to look at the life of Jehu, God's choice to succeed Joram, who is the son of King Ahab, and this is one of the bloodiest transitions of power in Israel's history. Let's pick up the narrative at 2 Kings 9, verse 1. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. When you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from among his brethren and bring him into an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. When he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting. And he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, O captain. Jehu arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servant, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, And I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Yeah, that would be some message to get, right? We're going to talk about this. Highly unusual. Uh, you can't make this stuff up, right? One of the things that you know the Bible speaks truth is because it doesn't whitewash anything. Scripture speaks absolute truth, good or bad, about God's people and people that are not God's people. Here's our principle, first principle. Ultimately, 
Every leader is promoted by God in order to fulfill God's plan for that specific point in history. Let me say that again. Ultimately, every leader is promoted by God in order to fulfill God's plan for that specific point in history. One example of that is King David. Luke, who wrote Luke 2, which is also known as Acts, it's his second epistle, in Acts 13.36, it says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation. So God prepared King David for his strategic role as the king over Israel, and when that purpose was completed, David died and went to heaven. And you say, well, that's pretty obvious, Brad. God has prepared every single one of you in this room for a specific purpose that he wants you to do while you're still above room temperature, vertical, and breathing air. I trust you're above room temperature, right? If you're not, you're going to be cold. So until God says your work is done, you're bulletproof. Nothing will take you out of this planet apart from our Lord Jesus Christ who says, it's time for you to go home, your work is finished. Until your work is finished, you better keep working. You know what that means? If you're still here, you've got work to do. Your work is not done until you get home to your mansion. Until then, stay in the field, keep working. That's what happened in the life of Jehu. That's what happened in the life of David. That's what happens in every one of God's people. God put us on the planet for his pleasure, for his glory, for us to be a blessing, and he has work for us to do while we're here. Now, on God's perfect calendar, it's now time for Israel's next king to enter the picture. This leadership transition comes from the Lord. And God identified his choice of the next king, and he told Elisha, I'm going to give you his name, I'm going to give you his ancestry, and I'm going to give you his current location. His name is Jehu, he's the son of Nimshi. He's now located in Ramoth-Gilead, which was a city in the east side of the Jordan River. He was a captain in the army of Israel as a military career officer. And at that very moment, he was defending the city of Ramoth-Gilead, which was an eastern city, the east side of the Jordan, belonged to Israel, but it bordered Syria or Aram, same country, and it was fought over continuously. This city was a border town. And border towns tend to change hands depending on which nation on the border has a greater power at any given point in time. When you live in a border town, it can go between Kingdom A and Kingdom B, and it goes back and forth routinely, and that's what was happening to this town. Now, Elisha was the head of a school of prophets, a number of them, as a matter of fact, that we know of at least three, and he tasked one of the sons of the prophets, he said, I have a job description for you. Your job is to go to Ramoth-Gilead, and you are to anoint, pour oil, on the top of the head of Jehu, who's going to be the next king of Israel. So God told Elisha, Jehu's in Ramoth-Gilead, and he's going to be seated among a group of fellow officers. See, yeah, understand God knows what he's doing, right? He's arranging all this. And Elisha gives this guy very specific instructions. He says, I want you to bring him to a private room in the house, away from his fellow officers. I want you to pour a flask of oil on his head, olive oil, which was a traditional ceremony to anoint a king, Oil in the, Old, in the New Testament and Old Testament is a representation of the Holy Spirit. So when you anointed a king with oil, it was a symbolic 
reference to God's anointing you to do your job description. Tell him, I've anointed you king over Israel, and flee. And he did exactly as instructed. By the way, this is the only recording of an anointing in the northern kingdom. In 931, remember Solomon died, Rehoboam split the kingdom. We have the northern ten tribes and the southern two tribes. The northern ten tribes are called Israel. The southern two tribes are called Judah. It was routine for anointing in the southern kingdom. For you to be anointed meant there was a peaceful transition of power. Now, there were 20 kings in the northern Israel, the ten tribes. Many of them were assassinated. That's how power changed. You got killed. So this is the only king in the northern ten tribes that actually was anointed. A lot of them were just knocked off by their favorite general or whatever it happened to be at that point in time. So this prophet not only anointed Jehu as king, he gave him his job description. And it was extraordinarily specific. He said, Jehu, I'm raising you up to be king. You're going to fulfill the promise I made to Ahab after he murdered Naboth. I told him that judgment was coming, and you are my instrument of judgment on the house of Ahab. God told Jehu, your job is to exterminate every male descendant of Ahab. Not one was to be left alive. I'm going I'm, I'm to destroy the house of Ahab, every male descendant, in the same way that I destroyed the house of Jeroboam because he led Israel to sin, and the house of Baasha, he was, I think, king number five, they were both eradicated. And God said, my purpose in destroying Ahab's house is to avenge the blood of my servants and the prophets. Ahab and Jezebel had murdered and massacred many, many of God's prophets and God's people in Israel who were followers of Yahweh. They wanted to install Baal worship, and if you followed God in Israel, they took your head off, literally. I mean, they murdered Naboth, and he was only one of many. Remember that Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, so he had him executed. Jezebel arranged for his execution. It was all legal, but she arranged for his murder in order to get the... I uh, get the vineyard. That was 12 years ago. I want you to think about this. You are Naboth's widow. And God has promised that he's going to avenge the death of your husband, and it's been 12 years. What are you thinking? You want to hire Bruno to go take care of this guy, right? I mean, you're not going to wait around. You're going to take matters in your own hands. I want you to know God's judgment is certain in his time, his way, for his purposes. God always keeps his word. When he told Ahab, judgment hangs heavy, heavy over your head and the axe is going to fall, it's going to fall when God says it's time. Romans 12, 19 says what? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Here's what we have trouble with. God alone is qualified to recompense people. Only God is qualified to recompense people with perfect justice, with perfect timing. Because God alone knows their motives. God alone knows their behaviors. And furthermore, God alone knows the impact of their behaviors over the next 15, 20, 30 generations. He knows what the consequences of their behavior is. There's an ancient Greek proverb that says, the wheels of justice turn slowly, 
but they grind exceedingly fine. I believe that, but my flesh wants the wheels of justice to turn quickly, like this afternoon. May they get theirs, right? Whatever that happens to be, right? So it's important for us to understand that God's justice is always perfect justice. God's timing is always perfect timing. God's justice is always perfect in outcome. And we often struggle with God's timing. Here's what we want. We want instant justice for them and infinite mercy for us. Right? Only God knows the balance between perfect justice and perfect mercy. And only God delivers both. Only God. We do not understand that apart from the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God's been patient with the house of Ahab. They've refused to repent, and now the day of judgment has arrived, and Jehu is God's divine choice to bring about that justice. He said, Queen Jezebel is going to be thrown out like garbage. Scavenger dogs are going to eat her corpse. There's not going to be enough to bury. By the way, if you're a queen, not having your body buried was humiliating. It was humiliating anywhere, but it was especially humiliating in that sense. God said, I'm going to cut off every male descendant of, of Ahab, every single one. Now, Jehu is a military captain in the army. He's a professional military officer. He's very good at killing people, Israel's enemies. God says, I'm going to use that skill set to accomplish my justice on the house of Ahab. Now, the, the prophet, after he anointed him and pronounced his job description, fled. Obviously, he was told to flee to avoid retribution. I mean, remember, Joram is still a king. So when you anoint a successor king, you could lose your head very quickly. So he's told to get out of Dodge, which he does. Pick up the narrative in verse 14, 2 Kings 9, 14. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, was defending Ramoth-Gilead against Hazel, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds with which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Hazel, king of Aram. So Jehu said to his fellow officers, that is, if this be your mind, then let no one escape or leave the city. I jumped ahead to verse 15, those of you who are following. Or leave the city to go and tell it in Jezreel, verse 16. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was lying there. Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came, and he said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send to meet them and say, is it peace? Verse 20, the watchman reported, he came to them, but he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. Verse 21, then Joram said, get ready. And they made his chariot ready, Joram king of Israel and Ahaziah king of Judah. Both went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu, and they found him in the property of Naboth, the Jezreelite. Jump down to verse 24. Then Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms, and the arrow went through his heart, and he sank in his chariot. Verse 25. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite, for I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him, quote, Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. 
Now then, take and cast them into the property according to the word of the Lord. Here's the principle. God never overlooks sin. Every sin will be paid for, either by the sinner themselves or by Jesus Christ who died in the believing sinner's place. He said it again. God never overlooks sin. Every sin will be paid for, either by the sinner themselves or by Jesus Christ who died in the believing sinner's place. One of the most fundamental truths, if not the most fundamental truth in Scripture, is overlooked and downright opposed by our planet who is under the authority of Satan. Very end of his life, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived apart from our Lord Jesus Christ, wrote the summation of everything he had learned. He's about 60 years old, wisest man who ever lived. He says, I'm going to sum up my entire life experience, and here it is, the very end of Ecclesiastes 12, the last book he wrote, the last chapter, the last verse. Quote, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The reality is, is the creation, all of it, we are creatures in God's creation, are accountable to the Creator. Period. There is no escaping that day of accountability. That's why for us who understand we are sinners, the cross of Jesus Christ is so precious. Because we understand that we are accountable, but Jesus Christ died in our place and took our sin. God himself is the ultimate reality that everyone is accountable to. And it's interesting, I've thought about evil and evil people, and I've thought about me when I was before I was saved, and I thought, what was it? Do, before Christ, did we really not believe that God was going to hold us accountable? Is that why we sinned? Did we really believe that God was not going to judge us for our sin? Do we really believe Satan's lie that God doesn't exist? So, therefore, there's no judgment. By the way, atheists really hope there is no God. Do they believe that God is really impotent to, to judge them? Or do they believe that, you know, I'm good enough to pass God's standard? It's just interesting how sinful people who love their sin, who reject the Savior, somehow rationalize the fact that they are going to stand before God for judgment in the end. Certainly, it seems as though Ahab and Jezebel didn't believe that the God of Israel is going to keep his word and kill them for their repeated refusal to repent. It's been over 12 years, and it seems like they've gotten away with it. I talk to people routinely that are so frustrated with injustice on planet Earth. Some of them are tempted to take matters in their own hands. I will tell you that is a really bad idea. You're not as smart as God. You're not as wise as God. You're not as powerful as God. And God says, I will repay in my time. And today, for Ahab's house, is the day of judgment. The city of Ramoth-Gilead, as we mentioned, is on the east side of the Jordan River, very close to Aram, fought over a lot of times. It's currently under attack by Aram, Hazel the king of Aram, and Ahab's son Joram has been over there defending the city. Now he's wounded. So he leaves Ramoth-Gilead, comes back 40 miles to Jezreel, which was the summer palace, and he's laying up to recoup. He's trying to heal from his wounds. King Ahaz, his nephew, comes up from Judah and visits him. So the king of Israel 
and the king of Judah are in the same town in Jezreel. Jehu and his co-conspirators, now he's been anointed, they're leaving Jezreel, I mean uh, Ramoth Gilead, and they're driving the 40 miles from Ramoth Gilead across the Jordan River from east to west, and they're going to Jezreel. And they ride the 40 miles, they don't tell anyone of his anointing or his plans to exterminate uh, Ahab's house. Now Jezreel's an elevated city. It's at the eastern end of the 18-mile-long Mount Carmel Range. Mount Carmel Range runs about 18 miles, about 1,700 feet. And it's the eastern end of that. It's very beautiful. You haven't been there. But it's the summer palace for Ahab and Jezebel. And that's where Joram, their kid, is recuperating, right? And so he's got a watchman on the wall. Jesus riding, and he has the watchman. The watchman says, I see a company coming, but I can't see who they are. I just see the horses and the dust. And Joram says, well, we've got to find out whether these are friends or foes. So he sends a horseman out to say, do you come in peace or not, right? Because he doesn't know whether they're Aramean soldiers, Israelite soldiers. By the way, if they turn out to be enemy, you've got to close the gates of the city quickly for protection. Well, Jehu is no dummy. He meets the soldier that King Joram has sent out, and he said, you're not going back to tell him anything. You fall behind me. Happens twice. Jehu doesn't want any word getting out that he's conspired to take over the kingdom, so he tells these two horsemen, you stay with my company. And, and of course, the, the watchman says, well, I, we sent two horsemen out, but they haven't come back. And by the way, he drives like Jehu. My father said my mother used to drive like Jehu. She was a fast driver. Jehu, uh, the, the watchman says, that looks like Jehu. He's driving like a, a very fast bat. Anyway, <laughs> he's got a reputation for fast driving, right? I think he's, he, he's a warrior. He's used to pursuing his enemies like a cheetah after prey. I mean, he's a single-minded guy. He's going to accomplish his purpose as fast as possible. So Joram then tells his nephew, Ahaziah, he says, um, let's get our chariots ready, let's go out and meet this character, because we know it's Jehu, and he's one of ours. He's a captain in the Israelite army. So they go out and they meet him, and where do they meet? In Naboth's vineyard. That's the very place where Ahab had killed Naboth 12 years earlier to get the vineyard, which is interesting. And Joram says, do you come in peace? Of course, the underlying question is, uh, why are you not in Ramoth-Gilead defending the city against Hazel? I mean, either the war is over or something's really wrong. You should not be here. Right? You should be over there. You're not on the front lines. And Jehu sarcastically responds, he's, there can be no peace as long as your mama and your father are in power. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he calls it straight up, right? And at that point in time, Joram figures out he's in deep doo-doo. And he says, Ahaziah, there is treachery. Well, yeah, duh, right? You know. By the way, by the time you figure out the problem is obvious, the solution is very difficult. He's figured out we're in deep trouble, but Jehu is really close. And this guy's a really good archer. And it says he seizes his bow and drives an arrow directly into Joram's heart, killing him instantly. So he's been recuperating from his wounds, so he probably doesn't have any armor on, which made it relatively easy to kill him. So they take Joram's body and they throw it in Naboth's vineyard because God had promised Elijah, I'm going to repay Ahab's wickedness in this exact vineyard. 
When God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, he's not kidding. Don't mess with God's vengeance. He will do what he chooses to do in his time and his way. For those of you that look around the world and you think people get away with stuff, nobody gets away with anything ever. There's lots of court trials in this nation and in this world for six and a half thousand years that have been unjust. But when you stand before, all human beings stand before God in Revelation 20, the great right throne judgment, perfect justice will be done. And everybody in heaven understands they don't deserve to be there because perfect justice was done on Jesus Christ, so we get his mercy. And everybody in hell understands that God has been perfectly just and given them perfect justice. Give God space to do that. Jehu then kills Ahaziah, who's the nephew. He's 22. He's wicked in God's sight as well. He's reigned less than one year, but he's refused to repent, and God says, I'm now going to give you justice. You need to understand that justice does not... Justice is a reflection of God's holiness. So justice honors God. Mercy is a reflection of His grace, and mercy honors Him as well. Both God's perfect justice and His perfect grace bring Him glory. But God's heart is to give people mercy. Ezekiel 33.11 says, he's talking to Israel. He says, Ezekiel, say to Israel... As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from their way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? That is the heartbeat of our Lord, who does justice because he's perfectly just, but he says, I want you to repent because I delight to show mercy. I would rather have you repent. I made it possible by sending my son, Jesus Christ, by paying the penalty for your sin. We know that. Romans 5.8 says what? But God demonstrates his own love toward us when? And that while we were still sinners, we were still at war with him. We were still at battle with him. Christ died for us as enemies. 2 Peter 3 says, God's not willing for any to perish. His heartbeat is for everyone to come to the knowledge of his truth. But he will not abrogate his justice or else he's no longer a just God. He has to exert vengeance on those who refuse to repent or he's no longer just. Ahab and Jezebel have refused to repent for decades because they love their sin more than they love God. God said, if you refuse my mercy then I will give you justice, which you deserve. By the way, none of us deserve mercy. We all deserve justice. The miracle is not that we, the, the real miracle is that any are saved. We all deserve hell. God would be perfectly just to condemn every single one of us to hell. We deserve it. We're sinners. That's why we say, what? Amazing grace. It is amazing because it's undeserved. Verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. As Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? And two or three eunuchs looked down at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. 
when he came in, he ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they returned and told him, and he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, In the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. And the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field and the property of Jezreel, so they cannot say, This is Jezebel. Jump ahead to chapter 10, verse 10. Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elisha. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel, all his great men, his acquaintances, and his priests, until they left him without a survivor. Here's the principle. We've already alluded to it. Both God's justice and the timing of his justice are perfect. Both God's justice and the timing of his justice are perfect. Whatever he has promised will come to pass precisely on his schedule. Whatever he has promised will come to pass precisely on his schedule. You know, we as humans, we make plans. How many of you make plans? You do? Question. How many of you have a plan B in case plan A doesn't work? How many of you have had plan A and plea go, get swirling around the drain? Neither one of them worked. That, that's not uncommon, right? Yeah, when we went to Kentucky and Tennessee, we spent 24 hours in the lovely city of Phoenix. It's a great place to spend when you miss a flight, right? Not our fault. The airline didn't show up on time, right? It's fascinating that there are no delays in God's calendar. There are no detours in God's map. His calendar ever changes because whatever he purposes absolutely comes to place in his perfect timing. Some of us are struggling with that as we pray. We say, God, what I'd like you to do is as follows. And the Lord says, I'm your shepherd, I'm your father, I heard your request, and I will make happen what I choose to happen when I make it happen, and his timing is perfect. We need to adjust our calendar to God's calendar on a daily basis. That's why we pray every day, Lord, this day is your day. I've got, I've, got, I've got my plan all worked out, and I surrender it to you. And by the way, if you have a to-do list, I'm going to give you a, just a suggestion. I'm trying to practice this. Leave the first three blank. If you've got five things you want to get done, you write one, two, three, leave them blank, and then you go three, four, five, six, seven. God will fill in the first three as he sees fit. And by the way, it may be your three. They may be his three. If you prayed over, maybe that's what it is. But always leave a couple spaces there because God has a way of smiling at your schedule. <laughs> now, doesn't he? Right? But you have a Heavenly Father who knows what you need for that day because he gave us that day according to his uh, sovereignty. Our job is to trust him and do what he does every day and wait on his perfect timing for what he wants to do in the future. And his timing is always precise. Habakkuk 2.3 says, For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come. It will not delay. There are no delays in God's calendar. There are delays in our calendar. We adjust our schedule to his schedule to accomplish his purpose. 
In God's perfect time, he appointed Jehu to be king over Israel to bring about his will. He's riding into Jezreel, which is the city of the summer palace, and Queen Jezebel paints her face, you know, Max Factor or whatever she does at that point, does her hair up. She wants to die like a Phoenician queen, all made up, right? When she, he rides into town, she calls him Zimri. She says, are you Zimri, your master's murderer? I want you to remember, Zimri was the army officer in Israel that killed his boss, who was King Ella. He was king number five, the son of Baasha. He killed his boss, took the throne, and he reigned for a week. Seven days, right? And when he um, was attacked by Jezebel's father-in-law, Omri, he set fire to the palace and burned the palace down over him. So he was one of the suicides recorded in Scripture. What Jezebel is saying is, Zimri reigned seven days, your reign is going to be equally short. So this was a bit of an insult to him. She already knew, by the way, that Jezebel had killed her son and her grandson, and she knew that she was next. She knew she was going to be killed. And she was currently in the second story of the Summer Palace, and Jehu yells up, who's on my side? And it says the two or three eunuchs looked out. By the way, if you were a male and you were employed by the king to watch the harem, the harem, or to be around women in the palace, you were made a eunuch because the king's bloodline had to be verified if you were going to inherit the throne. They didn't want any, you know, uh, anything other than the king's pure bloodline to do that, etc., etc. I'm not going to get into detail on that. But apparently, they weren't too fond of Jezebel because they heaved her out the window immediately, right? Second floor, she landed on the concrete. He trampled her with the horse's hooves, rode over her chariot, and killed her. And then he went to the palace and had dinner. But this is a military guy. He's used to killing people. He's not used to pushing a button and watching a bomb go. He's used to running you through with a sword. He's a military. He's a fighter. After dinner, he feels a little guilty, and he says, you know, you need to bury her. She is a king's daughter. She deserves at least the dignity of a burial. They go outside to try and find her. They find the palms of her hands, the soles of her feet, and her skull. By the way, that's where the bones are. Pretty tough for a dog to eat. If you have your hands, lots of bones in your hand, lots of bones in your feet, so they weren't eaten. Everything else had been eaten by scavenger dogs. By the way, this is not Fido. Back in the day, they didn't have pet animals. Dogs were scavengers. They were vermin. They killed and ate whatever they could at that point in time. So they were attracted by the smell of her blood, and they came or ate in her body exactly as God had spoken through Elijah. Verse 18. Then, Eli then Jehu gathered all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. Jehu will serve him much. Now summon all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers, all his priests. Let no one be missing, for I have a great sacrifice for Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But he did it in cunning, so that he might destroy the worshipers of Baal. Verse 20, And Jehu said, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal, and they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And when they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to another. This is his temple. Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshipers of Baal, Search and see that there is with you here none of the servants of the Lord, but only worshipers of Baal. Verse 24. Then he went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed for himself 80 men outside, and he said, The one who permits any of the men whom I bring into your hands to escape shall give up his life in exchange. 
And it came about as soon as he had finished the offering and the burnt offering that Jesus said to the guard and to the royal's officers, go in, kill him, let none come out. And they killed him with the edge of the sword, and the guard and the royal officers threw them out, and they went into the inner room of the house of Baal. Verse 26, and they brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. They broke down the sacred pillar, broke down the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. So far, so good. Verse 29. However, however, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart, even the golden calves that were in Bethel, that were a Dan. Verse 29, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had made Israel sin. Here's the principle. It's not enough to eliminate evil. You must also be careful to obey God completely. It's not enough to eliminate evil. You must be careful to obey God completely. So Jehu, in the cleaning house phase, followed God fully. He completely eliminated Ahab's descendants, and he completely eradicated Baal worship. He said, I'm going to have this great sacrifice. Everybody who's good have to come. And he does that, but he has 80 men outside. He butchers all the uh, uh, Baal worshipers, tears down the house, turns it into a latrine. So all that, he does exactly what God wanted to do. However, he didn't follow all the way through. Remember that Ahab had married Jezebel. She's the daughter of Ethbaal, who's the pagan king of Phoenician. She was the one who imported Baal worship into Israel. This is why we pray that our children and our grandchildren marry believers and not unbelievers. So they're not influenced away from God, they're influenced to God. Baal worship, by the way, you say, boy, this is pretty bloody, Brad. I mean, gee, you killed hundreds of Baal worshipers at one slot. Yeah, well, Baal worship was pretty gross. It involved child sacrifice, kill your own children, perversion, sexual prostitution on the high places. It was a a grossly perverted religion. And God had commanded them over and over and over, be done with this, stop doing this, but they wouldn't do it. So he, he had made a national proclamation, he had drawn all these Baal worshipers in, and then he eradicated all of them, which is exactly what God wanted him to do. And God says, because of your diligence in obeying and getting rid of evil, You've done exactly what I wanted you to get rid of evil. So four generations of your children will reign on the throne. So the, the, the reign of Jehu and his four children, four grandchildren, etc., four descendants, was over 100 years. That was the longest dynasty in Israel's history, the northern ten tribes. However, God said, you did a great job getting rid of evil. You did a lousy job of following good. Right? You allowed the worship of the golden calves to be continued. Now remember, Jeroboam was the first king of the northern ten tribes after the division. And he didn't want Israel 
going back to the temple in Judah to worship the true God. He wanted Israel to stay in Israel where he had control over them. So he built two golden calves, idols, and he commanded Israel to worship them. He built one golden calf in the northernmost region of the country called Dan, and he built another golden calf in a southern city called Bethel in the southern part of Judah, a southern part of Israel. So Jeroboam instituted idolatrous worship in Israel as opposed to worshiping Yahweh because he did not want the northern ten tribes going to the temple. The temple was in Judah. God said, you worship me in the temple. Jeroboam said, no, 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 no. If they go down there, they're going to worship the God of Israel and they're going to bring the kingdoms together and I'm out of a job. Not could be dead because, right, God had commanded the house of David to rule. So Jeroboam makes this political pronouncement and says, I'm going to institute idolatrous worship so that they won't have any reason to go to the temple and worship there. And God says, you led Israel into sin. And I've warned you, he sent multiple prophets, and as a result of that, I'm taking care of you and your family. There will be no male left of your family. And that happened. So you ask yourself, well, gee, you knew all this. Why did he not tear down the golden calves? Why didn't he restore Yahweh worship in Israel? I mean, God had obviously given him victory over Ahab's descendants. Both the northern and the southern tribes have been at war with each other. Civil war for some decades now. The ten northern tribes have been at war with the two southern tribes. It's been a family conflict. Jehu is currently at war with the southern kingdom of Judah. So if Jehu tears down the golden calves, now Israel might go back to Judah to worship the true God in the temple. And the two kingdoms might be reunited. Whoa. If that's true, and David's family is supposed to rule over all Israel, that means Jehu is out of a job. So he's got a choice. I'm going to choose to follow God fully, loyalty to God, even if it costs me my job as king. Or I'm going to choose political survival over loyalty to God. That choice is being made every single day in our world. Every single day. And sadly, political power and survival or job security for those of us that aren't politicians often trumps loyalty to the Lord. It is terribly easy to compromise that way. Caleb believed that God's promises would certainly come to pass. Caleb and Joshua. And it says about Caleb four times, or five times, he followed the Lord his God fully, completely, wholeheartedly, single-mindedly, without respect to what the consequences would be. So Caleb said, I'm going to follow God, and whatever consequences occur, God will deal with. But I'm going to declare my loyalty in thought, word, and deed. Jehu followed God only when it didn't threaten his primary goal which was political power, right? Killing Ahab was not just obeying God, it was establishing his own political dynasty. I mean, if you kill all the previous king's relatives, who's going to challenge your right to run the country? 
Nobody. Let me tell you, when you read Jehu, you get a feeling he liked it. He's a warrior. I mean, he really went out of his way to make sure it was thoroughly done. Which is not bad, because that's what God commanded them to do. But he refused to follow the first commandment, which was what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not you shall love your political power, your financial security, your job description, the praise of man or woman, and all that other stuff more than the Lord your God. He loved his political position more than God, even though it was God who gave him the throne. And this choice is extraordinarily common today. If you, if you read the very end of this, there's an interesting word. He says he was not careful, careful to walk in the law of the Lord his God with all his heart. I want you to know that the church is filled with people on a spectrum. Even saved people. You can tell when someone treats God casually. And you can tell when someone treats God carefully. There is a difference. God is not to be trifled with because he's God. I listen to how people describe God and sometimes I want to step away because I'm afraid a lightning bolt's coming. Seriously. Treating God casually is a violation of the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me because he alone is God. And he deserves to be treated with a great deal of respect. One of the things that I've been praying to the Lord for years now, I guess, is that I would learn to fear him in a biblical sense. Fear him because he is God. Fear him because he is sovereign. Fear him because he does what he wants to do as the creator. Now, we sing this great song, and it's a wonderful song. I am the friend of God. Yeah, that's true. But you're only the friend of God because he said you could be his friend. You're not the friend of God because you're such a wonderful person. You just silent and say, God, hey, buddy, you know, Santa Claus, here's what I want for Christmas, right? That's not how God works. Jehu was not careful. You say, well, how are you careful to walk in the, law, in the law of the Lord? Well, number one, know what he says. You can't walk carefully in the law of the Lord if you don't know what it says. May, so one of the ways you walk carefully in the law of the Lord is make time for your relationship with Jesus every day. And of course, you will have active opposition to do that because Satan will keep you distracted. Satan loves to interrupt your quiet time. Have you noticed? There's usually something going on that, you know, I'll get to it later. It's very easy to procrastinate our relationship with the Lord. And Jehu was all about the politics. So when his goal for political power and God's goal for eradicating Ahab lined up, he was glad to do it. But when following God could cost him political position, he said, well, you know, God, now you're messing with my idol, which is my political job, and I can't be doing that at that point in time. This choice faces us today. It's interesting, if you ask someone, is there anything in life that we value more than God himself? Anything. I don't know, but that's a very useful question. Now, don't ask it of yourself, because you will lie to yourself. 
Ask it of the Holy Spirit. Lord, show me if there's anything in my life that I value more than you. He will show you, right? And then you can confess that and repent of that and let God take that idol out of your life so that your relationship with the Lord will be whole and intimate again. It's a message to us that we need to be careful to follow the Lord our God fully, not just in eliminating evil, but in loving the Lord and following because he is worthy of that. Okay, let me review and then Tom will come and lead us in prayer and praise. Four major points, I'm going to repeat them again because I know we didn't have them on screen. Ultimately, every leader is promoted by God in order to accomplish God's plan for that specific point in history. That means you. God has you breathing now because he has a specific job description for you to do. He's appointed Andrew and he's appointed Brian for their particular positions and he's equipping them for what that's going to be in the next, Lord willing, 30, 40 years. I don't know. But God appoints all of us for the work he has for us to do. And it's our job to pray about what God wants us to do and then be doing that. Number two, God never overlooks any sin. Every sin will be paid for either by the sinner themselves or by Jesus Christ who died in the believing sinner's place. This is why our job description is so priceless. We are ambassadors for Christ, and we proclaim that people can be saved. People can have their sins forgiven. People can have a right relationship with God, and they can live with God forever in heaven based on the fact that Jesus Christ died in their place. That is freedom. Forever. Number three. Both God's justice and the timing of his justice are perfect. Whatever he has promised will come to pass precisely on his schedule. So we can trust him to accomplish his purposes. And lastly, it's not enough to eliminate evil. We must be careful to obey God completely, which means being careful is the opposite of casual. It's honoring the Lord, our God, with all our heart, soul, and mind and strength. Okay? You have enough to work on for this week? That's good. In 167 hours, Lord willing, I will see you again. Please keep reading ahead. We are going to spend the next three or four weeks finishing up 2 Kings, and then Lord willing, we'll begin the Gospel of John in the month of December. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.